Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to this week's podcast. Today's guest is Frank Portinari, a former loyalist gunrunner, brigadier for the London UDA and author of the book Left Right Loyalist from One Extreme to Another. We have so many people on this podcast who were involved some way in the Northern Ireland conflict. That's victims, that is people who were involved in violence and Frank you are one of those and what always intrigued me about your story was that you were born a Catholic Italian in North London and somehow you ended up involved in the conflict in Britain by joining an Ulster paramilitary organisation. I suppose my first question is how did that happen? Well, I'm glad I'm getting an opportunity because, and unfortunately, as far as the media is concerned, and, I, and I'm going back a lot of years, this isn't just recent, um, but there's been a lot of lazy journalism over the years. And, and once somebody um, prints something, it, it, it's just, uh, it gets regurgitated, basically, and, and very rarely gets challenged. And nobody comes to me. Nobody actually contacts me. Uh, and, and ask for any confirmation. So, yeah, it, it does stand quite a strange story, but when it's told correctly, it isn't really that strange um, because, yes, I had an Anglo-Italian father, um, but he left home when I was about two. So there's absolutely no Italian influence whatsoever. And it's, and it's only the surname that gives it away. So um, uh, my mother was Anglo-Irish. So her father was Spillane or Spillane, whichever way people choose to, you know, to uh, pronounce it. So growing up, I only ever knew being a Londoner, uh, being English and, and being British. So, you know, probably had never even been to Italy until I was about 30. Uh, and that certainly wasn't because I was looking for my roots or anything like that. So the the actual the actual the Italian Catholic persona doesn't really apply to me. Um, and I went to Sunday school. I didn't go to I didn't go to a, a Catholic church. I didn't go to a 
um, a Catholic school. Um, and so this Catholicism bit is a bit strange to me. But that said, I was no more a Protestant. So it's, yeah. you know, I was no more a Protestant. I, I, went, I went to Sunday school. When that got shut down, I went to a Methodist church. And probably by the time I went into secondary school, I had no connection with, with religion at all. Um, and my next introduction to religion was, was actually when I was in prison. Uh, and uh, I, I used to attend, you know, Chapman by um, chats on a Wednesday night. And then through my own volition, I decided to, to be baptised. So thanks for the opportunity for me to... No, straight because I read it all the time. I read it on so many, you know, uh, web pages and so on. So, so the fact is, Frank, that you actually weren't even a practicing Catholic. You were kind of only a Catholic by name. You never practiced the religion, but you're saying no, now no. that probably the media has jumped on that and said, "Oh, he was well, a Catholic." I, I, and he, he, I and he joined a, an yeah. Italian, an Italian surname. I get that, you know. Uh, and by far the majority of Italians are, are Catholic. I appreciate that. Um, because of the surname, as I say, so on my father's side, I'm assuming every aunt and uncle, cousin that I ever had probably were all were all Catholic. Um, and then, and, uh, and the same again with my mother. You know, being Anglo uh, being Anglo Irish, she she would have been the, would have been the same. But she. She had a parting of the ways with the Catholic Church when she was younger for her own personal reasons. Um, so she'd never sent me to a, a Catholic church or a Catholic school. And she could have done, you know. Was your mum from Ireland or was she like a second uh, generation sorry, Irish? Her father was. Her, her father was, was Irish. And was yeah. it from Northern Ireland or Southern Ireland? Southern Ireland, but I've got no idea which which part. I've got no idea which county he was from. Mm. So it's fair to say then, Frank, when you were going growing up in Camden and North London, religion mm. wasn't a big thing. It wasn't what what it would have been in Northern Ireland at all. No, I, I probably growing up had more Irish friends and spent more time in Irish households. Um, because I didn't spend a lot of time in my own. Um, so I was always in and out of other people's houses. Um, and there were very, very big Irish families in, in the road that I lived. The, ma the majority of my neighbours were Irish. Um, and I never knew them any different um, from, from anybody else, to, to be perfectly honest. I certainly wasn't aware of any troubles. And as I say, I had a very kind of naive view of Irish people in those days. Uh, I used to, you know, we used to go to the outside the Irish clubs and we was kids and watch them fight each other. That was great for us. Um, you know, we knew that they owned probably most of the pubs in the locality. And um, they would get into the back of vans at Camden Town, uh, Murphy's or, or Lavery's or something. So that was my, that was the only thing that distinguished Irish people for me, you know. And at that time, Frank, would there have been an anti-Irish sentiment in London because of, of the IRA? Because you were obviously born in the 60s and then your teenage years would have taken you through to the 70s and, 
And as we know, the 70s were, were the worst times of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. I'm trying to think back. I think there was a few bombings in London at, around yeah. the 70s, IRA bombings. Was that something that, that, that you were aware of growing up? No, I, I would say I was born in 57. So by early, say around 72, I would have been 15. Okay. So, I'd have known of the post office tower near Tottenham Court Road. Uh, I, I, I can vaguely remember that being blown up. I, I could vaguely remember 74, the Birmingham pub bombings. But I wasn't at all politicised at that time. I, I, I've said this many times. I would have been very politically naive. Uh, my view of the world was Labour was red, uh, Conservative was blue. And I assumed because my, my parents were well, because I did, I did get a stepfather eventually, um, that they would be Labour because we were all, you know, we were working class people, you know, outside toilet, uh, you know, tin bath on a nail on the wall, not a lot of money going around. I mean, that wasn't just us. I mean, that was pretty much the community, you know. Um, so no, I, I, I was pretty politically naive or just not interested, if I'm honest. I just, I just wasn't interested. Um, and then one night, someone, uh, a group of young people came knocking on the door. Uh, they said they were from the Young Socialists. Never had a clue. And um, they seemed genuine. You know, they seemed very idealistic. They talked about employment, housing, education, you know, all different things that, were, that I could relate to. And they invited me to a, to a local meeting. That was my introduction to politics, basically. And, and it was I, socialism. It was actually socialism. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it was more extreme than socialism because um, when I actually got to the meeting, there were actually more Workers' Revolutionary Party banners up and flags than what it was young socialists. Um, so this was my introduction to the middle classes. I, I'd never met, I'd never really met middle class people. I'd only ever known working class people. So that was, that was my introduction. Um, and I, I threw myself into that for some time. I went to rallies, meetings. Um, I think I sold the newspaper. I don't think what newsline it was called. So yeah, I was pretty much a committed um, socialist at that point. Um, and then, and then I'm trying to I think it was one day at a rally or a meeting. They were very, very critical about the British Army. Which I didn't get because <laughs> I didn't know yeah. the history. I didn't know the history of Ireland, so I didn't quite get that. Um, and, and they, I wouldn't go so far as to say they openly supported militant republicanism. Uh, they certainly was for United Ireland, whatever that meant, you know, at the time for me. And and, and eventually, my mates kind of said, "Look." You know, what's all this politics like? You know, you're supposed to be playing football with us or kind of coming to football with us. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I basically knocked it on the head. It, it, it did bring out a little side of me that I didn't know I had. It, it brought out a little bit of patriotism in me. I didn't. I suddenly felt very defensive when I was having a go at the army. And, and, and also it got to the stage where they'd be talking about the students in a certain country. Or workers in another country, and I'll be thinking, I've got, I've got, I'm concerned about the workers around where I live. 
you know, the council workers, the people like that. So in, in, in that sense, I suppose people would say that was my first introduction to nationalism as opposed to internationalism. But kept away from politics for a long, long time. Kept away from it for a long, long time. Uh, and in the early years, that that um, that nationalism, that patriotism, um, led me to the National Front because someone gave me a leaflet one day. Uh, I went to a meeting, and I was surrounded by working class blokes who I identified with, people that spoke like me, you know, and a football like me, tended to like similar music. And they weren't the very middle class, I'm honest. So I, I felt quite comfortable. And would you say then, Frank, that that there wasn't many places that a young working class man in North London felt he, where he could belong in those days? Yeah, yeah. Because where we lived, you'd had a lot of the houses that had been bombed out from the war. So there was a lot of regeneration. And then perfectly good houses that only needed central heating uh, and much better sanitation. Um, instead, they just knocked about five, six, maybe seven houses down, uh, streets. They completely demolished the community and people moved away from the community. So that wasn't that wasn't helpful. And you, you then got situations where schools might have youth clubs of an evening. Mm -hmm. And we... We had quite a big influx of West Indians that came into, into Camden. And so obviously they were coming to the youth club. So we wanted to play our music on a little record player and they clearly wanted to play theirs. So it would cause, it would cause friction. And, and then, of course, there'd be fights over the table tennis tables, you know, the little snooker tables. Uh, Fights would, you know, would take place. Um, and unfortunately, the youth leaders tended to take their part. And that caused a lot of ill feeling, a lot of ill feeling. Um, and then what really did it was they, they then got their, own, they got their own actual youth club, not a school hall. They got their own youth club. That caused a lot of ill feeling as well. So there was a lot going on at that, at that time. So... Yeah, you could easily be led into a certain way of thinking. And, and, and it's why I, people say to me, is the book Left, Right, Loyalist it, like a marching theme? And I'm saying, I oh, know it's where I was left, went to the right, and then the lawn, no, in the lawn. Yeah. Uh, and clearly backing up by sand at the bottom from one extreme. Because that's been in my life. I've gone from one extreme to another. When you were joining the National Front, um, can you remember what age you actually were when you joined? I think it was probably... I get confused. I thought I was about 18, but I actually think I was probably more, probably more like 20, somewhere mm -hmm. between 20 and 21. Um, yes, yes. So I did have a mind of my own. I did have a mind of my own. It wasn't like I was uh, coerced into it. Um, did you know that what you were getting into was a racist, fascist organisation? Yeah. Well, well, the irony is I, I, I didn't because I was surrounded by people <laughs> that I knew 
because yeah. it became a it became a very very cultural movement in the sense that in Camden there were lots of music venues you know there still are so different you know people with different uh, political persuasions followed different bands and different genres of music so if your mates if you were going to football with your mates you was going to watch the same bands as your mates playing football with your mates you know you were just part of that group of people but um so i didn't feel necessarily racist in the traditional sense what people would assume right a racist is but i was certainly very very patriotic and i certainly wanted the best for for you know for britain or the united kingdom uh, and i and i threw myself into it and it, it, it was only a matter of time before i, I became the organizer for camden um and I, and I went marches and places all over the country and canvassed at election time and, and so on, and had numerous conf- confrontations uh, with a variety of left-wing groups. In fact, I became quite notorious, to be honest. Um, but again, as I say, I take I take responsibility for that. But but later in life, I've also identified that whatever I'm involved in. I go to the extreme. It's just, you know, people might have a drink addiction or gambling or drugs. There's clearly something in me that when I get involved with something, it's all or nothing. I, I, I can't abide barstool preachers, you know, and I still listen to them 40 years later complaining about the world and have done absolutely nothing about it, you know. Um, so football, you know, I was an avid football fan, followed Tottenham all over the country, home and away, Europe. That's what happened. I became a football hooligan. When you say a football hooligan, did you know you were a football hooligan when you were doing it, or did you only realize oh, yeah, yeah. that you knew you were? Yeah, and um, and again, as I say, situations where you know I threw my I, I, I threw myself in. I realized that there was a great deal of camaraderie. There was a great deal of trust amongst people. You know, you go up to Newcastle on a Wednesday night. You know, if you're going to come back alive. Um, so you rely on your friends, you rely on the people around you, and you very quickly get a reputation. You know, if people see you fighting at an away game, when you go into your own pubs the following week for the home games, people recognise you and people say, oh, fair play, mate, I saw you last week, you know, you, was, you stood your ground, you didn't run away, blah, blah, blah. And that's when I was quite young. I mean, that was, you know, that was sort of 16, 17. So, the, so for want of a better way of putting it, the reputation was born quite early. Um, and, yeah, I was quite active. I, I, I was quite active and, uh, and had been, and been arrested on numerous occasions. In fact, more luck than judgment that I, that I didn't get imprisoned because I'd had a suspended sentence, then got away. But I got arrested up in Liverpool. And only because the police lied in their statement that I got off, I, was, I was definitely would have got a custodial sentence. So I know whatever I get involved with that I joked with someone the other day. I said, look, I am, I am a religious person, but privately. I'm not evangelical. I don't go around preaching to people. Right? I know if you invited me to a church meeting tomorrow, give it a few weeks, I'll be up in the pulpit. I'll be giving sermons. You know, I'll probably break away like old Mr. Paisley and form my own church. She's no. 
So I've never been so uh, apolitical. You know, I'm not a member of any political party, any political group, um, uh, and religion. I, I, I try not to talk about it because I don't want to. I don't want to be confrontational with people. And Frank, but football hooliganism. I mean, we had enough going on here in Northern Ireland mm. without football hooligans. So it's a wee mm. bit alien to a lot of people from here, and and some people who wouldn't be really into football, but. Being a football hooligan, I mean, you were going to matches and, you know, you were dedicated supporters of a certain team, but you're willing to get involved in violence and whatever mm. as part of that, basically. Yeah, and, and again, you, st- you start to realise you have an influence over other people. You, you start to identify your leadership skills, for want of a better way of putting it. Uh, and if you lead... By example, you know, people will follow you. Someone said to me a few months ago, um, Frank, do you feel in some way you've been radicalised? And I laughed and said, no, no, no. If anything, I'm the one that's been doing the radicalising. Not necessarily consciously, but over the years, I've been treated, if I questioned a lot of my friends and associates over the years, how many of them stayed loyal to me? Not necessarily the cause. You know, I suspect a lot of them have stayed loyal to me. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if some of them turned around and said, you know what, Frank, the day you retired from all of this, we were so happy because we knew we could as well. Because they wouldn't have hired us. So, so it's, it's crazy. It's, it's a crazy kind of um, where you've, you know, you were saying there that, well, I, I couldn't get involved in the church tomorrow because I'd be up in the pulpit in a few weeks. You can get that easy into things, but at the same time, you have been a leader in certain things, which yeah. which is clear, and people follow yeah. you. It's a strange dynamic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's only it's 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 only after I wrote the book, and 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 I and I wrote the book as I as I felt it. It was like people say people who read the book have said it's like talking to you in the pub. You, you've just written it as if you're talking to us, you know. But that was the idea. That, that, that was the whole idea, to just have it straight. I mean, ideally, yeah, I, I, I don't like academics to have read it, but I thought the chances of finding it in a, in a university somewhere or a college, you know, on a shelf somewhere, probably wasn't going to happen. So I decided to write it as a, as a working-class bloke would write it, and it is a piece of, you know... Um, Conversational. Political and social history. So... It took some convincing for me to do it because I was a bit self-conscious. Um, but that has helped me identify because I'm reading about myself, aren't I? I'm writing and reading about myself and thinking, God, is that me? You know, how did I, how did I, how did I not see certain signs? You know, and, and I, when I, I do talks now and again, and I say to people, uh, I call it the treadmill, and I say, you, you, you get on the treadmill, you press the green button, and you go. And you don't look left, you don't look right, and you don't look behind you. You just keep going. And one day you hit the red button and you get off and you go, fuck, where have I been? You know, how, how did I get here? You know, why did I get on here? Who helped me get on here? Why didn't somebody else get on here? You know, and, and there's no safety mechanisms there, is there? You know, because you wasn't looking for any before you got on there. Well, I would now. Anything I did now, I'd think, hold on, you know, what, what could go wrong here? So... I say that, to, you know, that's some of the talks that I do. I say to people, look, you need to be really careful 
because what you might just see as enthusiasm and wanting to please might be just could be something else. I mean, I met a great employee <laughs> because I go to extremes. I try to please as much as I can. You know, uh, you you, mm-hmm. you know your money's worth it. I mean, if nothing else. But it's, it's definitely something there. There's definitely something there. Do you regret any of the things you've done? Honestly, not really. And, I'll, and you can imagine how many times I've asked myself that question, and certainly other people have. And I would say the usual answer I give to that, my big regret, is the irony is the people I hurt the most were the people I cared about the most, which was my own family. So I'm not particularly proud about that, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I'm a very lucky man to still have that family, quite honestly. Um, and But I will say this, I'm not being blase about it, far from it, but it's a lot easier sitting here knowing that I haven't actually killed anybody. And it's not like there wasn't intent, because there was intent. But I haven't actually killed anybody. So I'm pleased. I'm very, very pleased I've not taken somebody's life. By the same token, a weapon that I may have supplied over the years could quite easily have taken somebody's life. And I say this, you know, an innocent man may have been killed. His, his mother might have died of a broken heart six months later. His wife might have had a nervous breakdown and his children have been traumatised ever since. Well, I wouldn't feel very proud about that. I wouldn't feel much of a soldier. But because it's not happened, it, it's difficult for me to confront. And, I, and, I, it, and I'll be perfectly honest with you. you know, sometimes I've had nightmares where modern forensics have suddenly identified a gun that I've supplied um, and I'm, I'm in court again. I actually, you know, lived the dream or the nightmare that I'm standing in a court being tried for something again. So, so it's a very, very difficult question because I'm not, that's not happening. You don't know the reality of whether the guns you supplied to the UDA killed somebody. And most likely they, I mean, sadly, they probably did, Frank, because. Quite possibly. The, in the time that you were supplying guns to the UDA, it was probably uh, the UFF at that time in the mid-90s yeah. were crying out. They were out, and I don't like using this term, but it has been used before, out killing the IRA at that time. And um, that's something you don't know. And I suppose maybe with what you're saying there that you don't know that answer, and that's how you cope with it. Yeah, that, that, that is a little bit of a safety mechanism, to be honest, because I, I, I remember a chap um, who, who was um, a UVF on, Billy Giles. And, you know, from what I've read of the, the, the story or listened to the story, he was a, um, a young man, you know, churchgoer, came from a good family, felt compelled to join the UVF, uh, killed somebody and he couldn't live with it. And eventually he killed himself. You know, so it's it, it's it, it's it's a difficult. It is a very very difficult one. And I I said this the first open visit with my wife because up until then it had been behind screens. Um, 
and even at the first open visit was still a category A visit. You weren't on the on the normal wings, you know. Uh, you were sitting there with two prison officers either side of you. And, and I said to my wife, I'm glad I got called. And she she said, what do you mean? How can you, you want to get called? And I had to say to her, where did you think this was going to end? You know, you, you can't be in charge and you can't have guns wrapped around you and not use them. So and she, that I think that's the first time she actually sort of realised to what extent I was involved. It wasn't just trips to with the boys to Belfast or Londonderry or Glasgow or Liverpool, Manchester, wherever. Just how serious it was. And she suddenly said to me, are you telling me you'd have shot somebody? And to this day, I don't think I actually gave her a straight answer. I, I think I just kind of went, you know, I made some sort of gesture. Mm-hmm. But I genuinely mean that. I'm, I was genuinely pleased that I got caught because it was only going to end my mind. And, and I said to people, um, I don't think people appreciate what life was like in, in, in Northern Ireland for all sides, all sides. Uh, and I'm convinced that if I'd, if I'd have lived in Northern Ireland, I'd have been dead or I'd have been dead in a life sentence. I'm, I'm quite convinced about it. That, that uh, prison term that you did was uh, from 1994 after you were caught in 1993. You were arrested in the car park of a Birmingham pub with seven guns and over 20, sorry, 240 rounds of ammunition. You're only 36 at the time. You worked as a school caretaker. Yep. It was found that you had the guns hidden in, in a room in the school. We'll get to that, uh, Frank. But I, I want to take you back just to when you were growing up in Camden and you were going through the football hooliganism stage mm. and and you were you know you were trying to live your life as well. Had had it had had the, the criminality consumed you to an extent that you didn't really care about your future? No, because because any criminality at that stage was very petty. Mm-hmm. Very, very petty. Um, I were of, of all. See, the thing is, some people say it's because you didn't have a father figure. I didn't have. A, I didn't have any older brothers, so I radiated to older men. You know, so a lot of influences were me trying to keep up with older men, whether that was drinking, whether that was fighting. You know, I, I remember some fellas I worked with who were, you know, were, were basically villains. You know, and they asked me to look after a bear one day. Um, it was actually, I think it was actually a sack. And being a teenager, you know, you're going to look in the sack. And there were sawn off shotguns and you know, balaclavas and gloves and, and so on. But, but I wasn't a villain, you know. And, and the irony is that some of the people I knocked about with that were, I, I, I kind of came to the decision quite early. I didn't want to be out with my girlfriend sitting in a restaurant having a meal. And another firm of geezers coming in and, you know, shooting at me and accidentally in her uh, or, or getting beaten up. So it's, it's, it's ironic, really, that I'm, I could quite easily make the decision to not be a villain, but didn't talk myself out of being a paramilitary, which was even more dangerous. So 
it, 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 it's, it's, it is a strange one, I'll grant you. You know, but I wasn't so. I think people get confused sometimes with, because when they say, even people in prison said to me, "How much money did you get for the guns?" And I'd say, "What do you mean?" Well, um, you know, how much did you sell them? I said, "I didn't sell them. I gave them willingly, and they couldn't understand that because they were villains." So you you, you kind of were on the fringes of gangsterism and. In in London, basically, Frank. And when did you start to drift towards Ulster loyalist paramilitaries? Like, how did you even become aware of that in London? Well, I think what did that, apart from the fact that the, you know, the the National Front is obviously a lot of their publications um, and propaganda was very much for, you know, for for Ulster, you know, keep Ulster British, you know. And so on. So I did start to get a little bit more knowledge and I started to interact with people from Northern Ireland that had come from Northern Ireland to live in London. So there were some personal relationships that got built up. And you've got to remember that there was a lot of support for, I'll say for United Ireland, but equally was a lot of support for the IRA and there was some support, lesser to a lesser degree. For the likes of Inla, and then I suppose you know, eventually, you know, the IPLO and, and so on, and various other factions. But we would have various places. Look, people are going to collect money in pubs, you know, buy a bullet. You know, be sitting in a pub and people would come in and it'd be buy a bullet, you know, pay, make a donation. Uh, selling people selling troops out magazines. So we would get into confrontations. And then you would have far, far more uh, violent um, situations when there'd be parades or marches, I should say. So, and this was in London. These yeah, marches, and these would be what type of marches would? would in in London, every at the beginning of the year, say January, you would have the troops out would have the um, bloody Sunday parades, which in itself I don't take offence at that. What I used to say offensive was the fact that at the beginning of those parades, there would be Republican bands, usually from Scotland, and they would be playing pro IRA tunes. So to me, that changed the that that changed the what that parade was for. That just wasn't about getting justice for you know mm-hmm. for those victims. That was something else. There was a political message as well. And then in August, you'd get the internment parade. Now, that would be the um, Irish Freedom Movement. But what tended to happen was sometime before those parades, there'd be a bombing on the mainland. So we kind of took the attitude, hold on, you know, that's just a little bit of a liberty, you know, that you're going to walk down our streets. And funny, I find it ironic because 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 uh, in Northern Ireland, you know, when, people, when I, I see or I've heard people say, oh, we don't want orange parades you know, uh, or, or marches coming through or on the outskirts of our community. I think, well, that's a bit ironic because your supporters on the mainland used to march up our streets playing IRA tunes. So if that wasn't provocative, I don't know what was. Um, so we'd get, into confronta- we'd get into confrontation. And eventually, um, the same way the police would know us from, from the violence of football, 
the police very quickly, you know, the police quickly recognise you that you're. We'll say, I say loyalist thing. We were probably, most of my associates were probably British nationalists, I would say. We hadn't quite got to that stage of, you know, being classified as loyalists, although we knew quite a few. Mm-hmm. But eventually I think the penny dropped and we thought, well, hold on, this isn't exactly equal, is it? We're attacking a parade and throwing a few punches. You're blowing us up. That doesn't seem equal to me. Um, and I think that's when people said, no, we're not having this. But it's easy saying it, but what did we do about it? We weren't. But most of us, and here's something else I don't think people realise, the amount of people that I associated with that were actually from Irish heritage, you know, you'd be, you'd actually be surprised how many people on the pavement that was attacking these parades had one or two Irish, you know, uh, grandparents. In some cases, an Irish parent. But as far as they were concerned, they was Londoners, and you know, and they were, and they were born in England, uh, and, and they were British, and that might come as a shock for some people. Um, and, but we and were, and were people then associating protesters. With these mat- marches, were they associating them with the IRA, even though that wouldn't necessarily no. be the case? Because you had people at the beginning of at the parades who who would be polite and say they were Sinn Féin, but as they say, the dogs on the street knew who they really were, you know. And then when you had people, you know, like Ken Livingstone and uh, John McDonald and um, Jeremy Corbyn. You know, making them welcome in London as well. You know, County Hall, uh, Houses of Parliament, um, various town halls around us, particularly particularly Islington. You know, we suddenly thought, hold on, you know, these are supposed to be British MPs. What are they doing walking with these people and bands that you know go, I, all right. Well, you can't get more explicit than that. That's not. You know, that's not trying to pretend to be anything else. So that was the thing. So they got the parade on the basis of it was justice, you know, for the victims of, 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 of you know, the, it was a bloody sunny march. As I say in August, it was an internment that ended years before, but they insisted on having these anti-internment parades. So what the general purpose, so in the newspapers, you know, it would be that's what those parades before. But we knew there were elements on that parade, particularly the more extreme left wing, who were very much for the IRA and very much for England. So for want of a better way of putting it, that's who our argument was with, you know, and, and that's who we physically wanted to engage with. And then eventually, none of us were in the Orange Order. None of us were apprentice boys. None, um, we probably would have sided more with Rangers and Celtic. That's how tenuous the link was, you know. But eventually, as I say, I recall the time people got more politicised and, and there was more talk of, of militancy. And did you, Frank, can I ask, did you hate Republicans or did you hate Catholics or did you hate both? Republican. The okay. The Every man standing next to me attacking a parade. So, you know, um, 
and eventually, I know. See, but then again, none of us were religious. So even if you referred to yourself as Catholic or your family were from that, had a Catholic heritage, um, which might certainly did, you know, that wasn't the issue. We, as far as we were concerned, we were, we were Londoners for a start. You know, this was our city. We didn't take kind of people playing up and marching through singing IRA or in that. Um, and and uh, we were British. That's the, those were the things that bound us together. Nothing to do with religion at all. And eventually we knew there were orange parades occasionally in, in London and apprentice boys parades. And um, we, we made ourselves known. You know, there'd be 25, 30 of us would go along. And the irony is, the Orange Order and the Apprentice Boys used to tell the police to send us away. So they'd be quite happy when we were attacked. They'd encourage us to attack these parades. But when we used to stand on the pavement watching them, their parades, they would want, they'd want us moved on, you know. But, but eventually we did make contact with people, yes. And can you talk about who introduced you to the UDA? I mean, you mightn't be able to name names, but... You know, how how did that connection happen? And I take it you would have to have been sworn in like any other member of a prescribed organization. Yeah. It didn't quite it didn't quite happen that, that way. It wasn't like going over to East Belfast knocking on the door at Gong Street and saying, Oh, but you know, this was the old UDA court and saying, Oh, but I'd like to join your organization. It, it certainly wasn't like that, or you know, it wasn't on the twelfth, you know, whereas people have had a drink and suddenly decided they want to join UDA or the UVF. Um, we 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 met somebody that was originally from Northern Ireland. He was from Lisbon, and we were led to believe he was a conduit to the UDA. So we we approached him, and he introduced us to the the person that was the OC for London at that time, uh, and and he was a, he was a Scotsman called Joe. Uh, myself and a friend went along to meet him, uh, uh, and I've always been honest with people. I said I was thoroughly I'm impressed. Uh, he he stunk with vodka. And uh, I made it clear to the original person we'd met, there's no one entrusting me or my friends or associates. You know, uh, under the leadership of this of this fella. And we met him one more time at a, at a meeting place we arranged. And, and again, people were thoroughly unimpressed. So I, I let them make their own minds up, you know. Uh, and then they said to me, no, we're going to follow anyone. We're going to follow you. Which was awkward because I had no experience. I wasn't a paramilitary. And um, but what we did do, we, we, I said, look, I knew the other fellow was dying to be in charge. He was just one of those people. He had that temperament. He wanted to be in charge. So we decided to let him have the administrative side of it for want of a better way of putting it. He wasn't going to stop us doing what we wanted to do. And we had to be respectful because there was already people in and around London that were sworn in members, you know. So we played the game, uh, but it all came to a, it all came to an end because uh, one particular evening we met and uh, a friend came along and he had a equivalent of a catalogue of, of weapons. And uh, he said, uh, oh, look, we can get this, 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 and this. And the chap went, good work, good work, speak to Frank. And another fellow went, oh, on a minute, you're meant to be in charge. You know, we take the dive, you take the dive. And we could see he wasn't up for it. 
we could see he wasn't up for it. And a few days later, we, we, we drove over to where he lived in South London. And um, it was five of us. And he walked in the pub and the look on his face was he just knew he wasn't welcome. And he came over and he said to me, uh, uh, the equivalent of I'm standing down. And I said, no, you're not. You're being fucking stood down. Don't worry about that. Of course, once that happened, that elevated me. So, mm-hmm. so, so there you are. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, it's the trick move. And then you became the brigadier of London UDA, basically. And what age were you then? I think that would have been around... It would have been around mid mid eighties, I would say. It, it's documented that I took over in nineteen eighty eight. Nineteen eighty eight. I took over in ninety eight. I was I was active long before that. I was active at least three years. I would say. What do you mean by active, Frank? Not in not in a militant sense. Not in a militant sense. You, you know, just streetwise, street activities, and so mm-hmm. on. But were you raising money for the UDA? Oh. Yeah, raising money, selling papers, you know, lawyers, prisoners, lawyers, prisoners' aid. Yeah, very, very active in that. 
And then eventually I, I went to Lisbon. I went to Lisbon in, I think it was 85, 86. Then I got to meet to some people. I, I did get to meet John McMichael. So you yeah. actually met John McMichael, who was, yeah. I mean, very After at the time, he had the, the, uh, the Admiral Bembo. And uh, I went there and we spoke. I think I think we were a little bit of a novelty, to be honest, because we said so we weren't Orangemen, we weren't apprentice boys. Mm-hmm. We were from the capital, you know, of England. Um, and I think they were keen to make some sort of links, you know, with, with, with London. And then it just completely, I just met more and more people over the years and... The, the main, the biggest job we had was, was straightening out the mainland. Not main, sorry, I should rephrase that. Not mm-hmm. Scotland. Yeah. It was England because because there were groups of people all over England, and as far as we were aware, you know, they, they were supposed to be a paramilitary organisation. Yet we'd never heard of them doing anything. I mean, in fairness to them, I mean they might be supplying weapons elsewhere, but we very quickly learned that various social clubs in different towns and cities, it was almost like they were getting drinks bought for them, you know, getting handshakes, tap on the back. And I'm thinking, hold on, you, you, you still don't strike me as being particularly militant or, or being paramilitary. So we would meet, we would each area, north, you know, Midlands, south, whatever, London, we would meet in, in, uh, in a hotel. Each one would take turns to go, you know, to have a meeting in a hotel. Which I put a stop to. I wasn't happy about that because I said, "Well, what if someone's in the next room? You know, what if there's a listening device in there? You know." So I, I kind of removed myself. Away. I learned very quickly. Let's put it that way. I learned very, very quickly. Um, when was the first time you actually went to Northern Ireland? Was it after you became a member of the UDA in London, or was it before? Let me get this straight. Yeah, because I was, yeah. Oh, no, no, I've been over there first. No, tell a lie. I've been there first because I was sworn in here. In fact, I remember I was, I was sworn in. I was sworn in a, in a hotel no. in Coventry. Yeah, I was sworn in a hotel in Coventry. Actually, that's not true. Actually, that's not true. I was sworn in block before that. We were presented with the London Brigade standards in a hotel in Coventry. So, but I was sworn in in London. Yeah, I was sworn in in London. So, yeah, I would have been sworn in before I actually went to Belfast. I beg your pardon. Yeah. So you went, was it a big thing for you going to Northern Ireland? I mean, at this time, the Troubles would had, I mean, it was, we were right bang in the middle of it. Mm. Innocent people uh, were losing their lives every day. There was bombings, there were shootings. It just didn't bother you at all that you were going over into the middle oh, of no, that? No, no. No, no, no. It, it, I, I very quickly learned about the um, the various areas. You know, the geography. If you walk down the wrong, you know, the, the wrong street, you've got the mm-hmm. you've got a bus or a cab to. You know, I, I learned that quite yeah. quickly. It, it, it was helped as well because obviously I'd got to start to know people as well, and and, and some people I knew had been killed. Some people that I knew had, had, had been imprisoned. So it also became very personal. It, it got very, very personal. Um, but eventually, you know, I would go to, um, well, I'd, I'd fly over quite regularly and I'd go to inner council meetings in in, in Gone Street. So I'd, I'd met all the the main players, for want of a better way of putting it. Um, 
I, I knew a lot about internal politics. You know, um, no, I certainly learned what I certainly learned what a tout was very quickly. That was for sure. Uh, that's not a term you use in London, is it? No, no, it's not. No, but uh, yes, yeah, so I soon. You know, and, and, and the perception was, you know, if someone's in charge, is in charge of hundreds of men, in some cases, really, then um, they must be trustworthy, mustn't they? Because their men have, have put them in that position. I'll soon know that's not the case. I'll soon know that wasn't the case. Um, and without jumping too far ahead, it's probably one of the biggest mistakes we made was confiding in people. Because we were obviously trying to impress. We were trying to impress that we were as, we was intending to be as militant as you and as active as you. But all that, it just drew attention to us from special branch and, um, and military intelligence. When you say there was inner council meetings in Coventry, I mean, how many people were on your inner council? I know in Belfast and areas there would have been 10, would have been a big. You'd have had the OC and you'd have had a 2IC from London and then you'd have had the equivalent from Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield. Coventry, Birmingham, Wolverhampton. Uh, and one of the reasons why I stopped attending the meetings because the next month there'd be a new 2IC. And I'd go, oh, well, I don't know this bloke, is he? I think I'm going to sit in this room talking business in front of this, I don't know the fella. So eventually we stopped, we stopped attending them. We just stopped attending them. But what we did do was we, we, we went round to try and to, to identify who were the most militant and who was prepared to do certain things, which didn't go down well because it, you know, it, um, it, it, um, it disturbed the status quo. Some, you know, some people were were only known in their social club for being a member of the UDA. That's the respect they got. You know, they weren't respected for anything else. So I felt that was abusing the position. So we would go around and we would talk to people and we would basically say, which we were called. To, we were called the Cockney Upstarts. You know, it was who the fuck do they think they are? But we, you know, we meant it. And on one occasion, I won't name the club and embarrass anybody, but I, I went along with a friend and we went and we, we spoke our mind, shall we say, and when we came out of the social club, they, they followed us out into the car park, you know, obviously intent with sorting us out. Uh, one of us opened up their overcoat and pulled out a nine mil brand automatic and said, keep coming. So they realised we weren't messing about. They realised we wasn't messing about. Um, and eventually a lot of people left. But that's, you know, that's, we wanted it to be militant. We didn't, we wasn't interested in selling papers and badges and so on. I mean, when you say militant, that was going to be attacks, shootings, bombings. You, yeah. didn't, you didn't think about the loss of life. Didn't come into your head. So I know you said you've been asked this before, but I'm going to ask it again. Do you not believe that you were radicalised? I mean, there was an element of revenge. You know, there clearly was an element of you kick me, I'll kick you. Right. You know, that, 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 there was clearly that philosophy, you know. Um, but no, I, 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 I think... I still stand by the fact that once I start something, I say, I won't tell you to go and do something unless I go and, you know, the old saying, you know, I wouldn't ask anybody to do something I wouldn't do it myself. So it, it, it just, it, 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 it steamrolled. And once it started going, there was, there, there was no, there was, 
no going back. And and what and the other thing is is your your targets become you're less discerning about who your targets are. So it might be you might start off with well we want to identify you know a, a, an IRA man or, or or someone you know representing Sinn Fein you know with, with, in and around England. Then it's like well who, who supplies them information? Who collects money for them? Who sells their newspaper? You know, who provides their propaganda? So you start thinking, you know what, they're all they're all eligible. Fuck them. You know, they're quite happy to contribute to killing us. Why should we be why should we be concerned about them? Even then you don't stop. You don't you don't realise what you're prepared to do. But that's 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 the mental you've taken on, isn't it? You've you've put yourself in that position. And that's what I say about the trigger. Once you're on it, once you're on it, yeah. So you, till you press that red button, you don't get off. Only then you just look, look back and go, oh, "How did I get here?" But I take, I will keep, mm-hmm. I will keep you know, stressing it. I take, I take responsibility for that. But no, I don't. My family circumstances, you know, my my social surroundings, maybe, you know, maybe. Maybe some some sociologist or psychologist have a field day and say, ah, oh, look, it's obvious. Look, he wasn't content with fighting the football. He thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go fight him on the streets politically. Oh, that's not enough violence for him. He wants to join a paramilitary organisation. You can't get him. But it wasn't a bloodlust on my part. <laughs> I wasn't. I didn't get involved to inflict violence, but I certainly got involved to make a statement and go, well, well hold on, you know, you're not going to do this and just think you're going to get away with it. Um, and that might sound strange now, but that's just the atmosphere as it was at, at the time. Frank, maybe it's not a question you want to answer, but I'll ask it anyway. How many people were killed, if any, when you were commander of London UDA in 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 the mainland? No. no. How many attacks were carried out? When you under when you were commander, well, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way: I'd have to say again, none. But there was reasons. There were reasons why, and that was that was partly because of good intelligence, as far as the security services were concerned, well, and, and also, and, and also, look if you sat if you sat in the back of a car. With two military intelligence officers, and they saw you, chapter and verse, about an operation that you that you were planning on being part of, and eventually you sit there and go, "All right, they nick me," because you start to realise, "Oh, well, I'm sitting in the back of a car. I'm not sitting in the police station, am I? I'm sitting in the back of a car, so they're not going to nick me, are they?" So what they did was they said, "We'll give you enough rope, and you'll hang yourself." And two years later, I did hang myself. But there was also situations where people from Belfast actively encouraged us to do certain things. And we would spend months planning on doing it, you know, doing reconnaissance, etc., on certain people. And then we get told, oh, we've had some information from an RUC officer who's got a contact over in London. And they've told him that they're currently watching a group of people in London. You better watch yourself, lads. 
So you'd have to cancel what you did. Oh, you better be political for six months. So it wasn't it wasn't as if there wasn't in, intent. And we know we we know why we drew attention to ourselves. We know why we drew attention to ourselves because we, we, we let it be known that as far as we were concerned, that if 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 British MPs um, who supported the union could be targets, like Ian Gow, for example, then why should British MPs that supported the United Ireland or more to the point we believed supported the IRA, why weren't they targets? Why weren't they being targeted? You know. And and there was two plots to kill Ken Livingston, who was mayor of London at that time, and that was a UFF plot. Uh, Michael Stone revealed one of those, and then you revealed the other in your book, and um, you had said, Frank, that the plan was to shoot Ken Livingstone as he was at a bloody Sunday march in 1993 in Hyde Park, and you had described that in detail in your book. Do you want to tell people how, I mean, that came about? Well, purely because we 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 felt that that if he wanted to keep, if he wanted to continue to support these people, um, and quite be quite vocal about it, quite proud of it, then we need to, we needed to make an example. If all these if thousands of people thought they could keep walking up and down each way around, singing an IRA, I'm not saying they all did. Just let's get that straight. But they were clearly clearly prepared to walk behind bands that were playing IRA tunes and have some prominent Sinn Féin people at the head of the parade. So, you know, I think the, the thinking behind it was, well, if you think you're safe on them parades, you're not safe. And there's one way of proving you're not safe. And for want of a better way of putting it, you know, you, t- you take the head off the snake. Um, and, and that's why people like him were identified and John McDonnell and, 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 um, and Jeremy Corbyn. Because as far as we were concerned, those three, were the enemy. It's, it's as simple as that. We, we saw them. We saw them as the enemy. And, and in the case, in the case of uh, Livingstone, he was a very, very lucky man because they were all in Hyde Park, and it's only because there were so many protesters there. I mean, three hundred and seventy odd people were taken off the streets in green buses and taken to police stations. We we would say there was over a thousand people that were opposing that parade that day, and that was the whole idea to have that cover of people there. And, and we'd encouraged all them people to be there. There was no mobiles in those days. We were literally going around the country encouraging people to be there on that day. And they wouldn't come out of the park. They would not come out of, of Hyde Park. And that's where things started to go wrong. And, and, and the irony is, and, they, the irony is, and we, we mentioned this to the police, to senior police officers on the day. You know, isn't it ironic? You see the people standing in that park who's asking you to protect them, I said, give a cheer every time your colleagues back, you know, back in Northern Ireland, the IUC, get killed. Now they're asking for your protection. You don't find it ironic, you know. But, yeah, there's no doubt about it. He was a, he was a very lucky man that day. And what happened was you, or sorry, the UFF had planned to, uh, when the protesters came out, uh, there's going to be confusion made with 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 your side and and people. There would fights would break out, and and the hope would be to get Ken Livingstone and shit him. Yes, yeah, so confusion. Confusion. I mean, we'd get close enough. 
within within all the you know the mayhem that would have been going on. Uh, th- that would have been the opportunity. Yeah. Frank, uh, do you not? I mean, many years have passed, and I can understand that over the years that there would have been a, a little bit of um, you know negativity from unionists and loyalists around Bloody Sunday. The facts are fully known now. There, there was thirteen people murdered indiscriminately that day. There was no members of the IRA by by power trippers. Have you ever reflected on that and realized? Well, I mean, maybe these people were protesting for a reason, and they were. I mean, it's been proven that the British Prime Minister had to apologise to the families of Bloody Sunday for what happened because I mean, just I recognised that at the very beginning. I, I have tried okay. to distinguish between people that mm-hmm. may have a legitimate reason to, mm-hmm. to ask for inquiries, to, to, to protest on the streets. I'm, I'm not denying anybody their democratic mm-hmm. right to do that, far from mm-hmm. it. But who they associate with while they're doing it mm-hmm. is, a completely different, is, is a completely different subject. Um, because where do you... Where, where do you where do you draw the line? Because we all know we all know that people can fain have proved that themselves. You know, you can, you can wear two masks. You know, so, so so someone walking along and claiming, oh, I'm only here today because blah 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 blah. Well, that might sound very moralistic, you know, and idealistic. What are they really thinking? You know, you seem quite comfortable walking behind bands playing IRA tunes. Why is that? You know, a, a, a quite militant um, messages on banners. And, you know, so I'm sorry if you, if you, you know, as a judge said to me, you don't, you know, if you if you lay down with dogs, you've got to expect to pick up a few fleas. Um, and you know that that's the way we viewed it at the time. You're, you know, you're traitors. You're enemy. You're the enemy. You know, the trade unions, the amount of trade unions that took part in those, you know, fights. You know. Working class people in London were getting blown up. You're supposed to be trade unionists. You know, you don't care about those people just because they've got a different political opinion to you. So I wasn't, you know, it was it wasn't a bloodlust. It wasn't about going around and attacking people just because they had a difference of opinion to you. That's not the case. That's not the case mm-hmm. at all. But people we felt were acting as mouthpieces for it. You know, were legitimate as far as as far as I'm and let's get something straight as well. I was a legitimate target, right? I, I don't expect any any uh, protection. I, I was putting myself out there to be attacked as well, uh, and even to a certain degree, even today, you know, I, I accept that I would be a legit today. I'd be a legitimate target. It's not, I, I don't have a problem with that. Did Did you expect? Today, did you expect to be targeted? Did you expect? No, no, no you said that never no, crossed your mind. That's the craziness. That, that, that's the craziness. As I say, I don't want to make you sound like you're being blase. But I was probably certainly complacent. Certainly complacent. Because as I say, you're only doing it through your eyes. You're, and you're only doing what other people are following you. You don't look, as I say, you don't look left, you don't look right, you don't look, You just focus on your job. Um, and, and achieving what you're, you know, what you're encouraging other people to do. You just don't have time to think. I do now, clearly. Yeah. When you were 
run in the UDA in London, in Northern Ireland, John McMichael was being blown up by an IRA car bomb. Other people in the UDA were being shot, sometimes by their own. I mean, all this was going on. Mm. I mean, how were you receiving that information? I mean, were you being told this stuff from people back in Northern Ireland? Oh, yeah. who I assume that you were getting orders from. Well, I was going there. I was going there so often, so I knew it was. I knew it was going on, and and I'm glad you mentioned John McMichael again because when we were talking about something else, I, I was about to say that you know I'm I'm, I'm very much um, very much a follower of John McMichael. Um, so my, my my the term that I use now is what was what he would use, which was one of nobody was exclusively right and nobody was exclusively wrong. So in that sense, if we can start from there, you know, we might get somewhere. You know, we, we, we may well be able to live with each other uh, and, and find a better way. So, yeah, I, re- I remember that quite vividly. I remember that quite vividly um, when it, when he was blown up. And, and unfortunately, many, many other situations. And one of the men that were thought to be responsible for that Jim Craig, on the night he was killed, two OCs from Belfast were sitting in my house having dinner. Tuck a little, right? And I won't name the other one. Were sitting in my house. They never told, they knew it was going to go on that night. They knew that Jim Craig was going to be lured to the, uh, the castle in or the bunch of grapes. It would have been its last name was the bunch of grapes before it got shut down and killed. They didn't tell me. But basically, I was their alibi. So they didn't even have the decency to tell me that they were using me as an alibi. So this is where I say you learn, don't you? You start looking at people. You start learning about people. And, and, and even if they are in charge of hundreds of people or thousands of people, you start to question them. And as I say, I, I knew where we went wrong was to go to Belfast and say that we felt certain people back in England were legitimate targets, because clearly they, some of them, obviously told their ambulance that. And then we got so much attention it was ridiculous. We got followed so much it was ridiculous. You know, to the, to the degree it was blatant sometimes, just to say to you, don't don't get any ideas, don't get any ideas, because we're one step, you know, one step behind. Were you thinking at that time when this was happening, you were being followed? Did you ever th- put two and two together and think, "Well, I've I've been over to Belfast. I've told people this." I suppose maybe you'd mentioned that. Were you been filled? <laughs> was your head been filled with you know ideas like, "Oh, you're being bugged. You're being this." When in reality, actually, there's just a few touts back in Belfast, yeah. and they're attempting to bring the special yeah. and, I, and, I, and I identify even more now, looking back looking back on certain situations, certain conversations. Uh, you know, I, I, I think there was a time when I sat around that table and there were six, there would be six other people and I reckon three of them were tabs. Easy. That's just my gut instinct without any proof. So, yeah, you, you, eventually you, you, you do learn. You, you do learn. And that's acceptable, isn't it? It's, it's, or it's accepted, I should say. You know, the, 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 the authorities are quite... Quite open about it, the, the amount of people that they had working, you know, for them, mm-hmm. and um, and in hindsight, 
people used to say to me, do you blame for getting caught? Well, so I was, well, I would blame myself, quite frankly. But looking back on it, I can identify somebody now. I well, can identify somebody. The, I mean, the very first time I read about your case, and it was May 1993, mm. you, you were arrested in the car park of a Birmingham pub handing over seven guns and 240 rounds of ammunition to a man from Belfast. And then the cops just appeared out of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, Do you think an informant was involved in you getting arrested? And, I mean, to be quite honest, it's it's good that they were because, I mean, we don't know where those guns were going. We don't know what innocent lives were going to be taken. 240 rounds of ammunition. 1993, the year we had grey steel, and I'm only talking about loyalist atrocities. There was other IRA atrocities, the Kashankel bombing, mm. um, but but there was grey steel, there was Castle Rock, there was there was atrocities. Uh, it was a dark, dark year. Yeah, so we're off. But but my question is, do you believe that there was a police informant who who in the UDA at that time that was giving that information to the police? About yeah. you, I do now. How long did it take you to realise that? Well, because I could think of probably half a dozen different permutations it could have been, but eventually, I believe I, I put enough of the pieces together to realise it. It what it, it went back to one particular person, and then when I got out of prison and went to Belfast. There seemed to be a popular opinion as well that it was the same person. I didn't let on who I thought it was. I was waiting to see what other people said. And, and, and it turned out that, yeah. But again, I'm saying that it could have been sloppiness on our part. It could have been being two blows out on our part. You know, it wasn't as if we it wasn't as if we weren't being watched. We just didn't know how how well we were being watched. Um but we did know that there would be more effort into catching us if they got proper information. And on this occasion, they, they had proper information, clearly. It was said in court that you have been supplying guns to the UDA in Northern Ireland for 18 months prior to that. Mm. How many guns do you think you supplied? Oh, dozens. Dozens. Over the course of time, there have been dozens. Absolutely. Um, were you were we getting these guns? Were these from gangsters in London? Were they coming from abroad? Where where were you getting them from? And some were some were villains. Some were, were villains that I did know, and um, and some were ex army fellows that I knew as well. So there was a there was a it was a combination of the two. Um, and I, I like to say something at this point because, as I say, a lot, a lot of rubbish gets regurgitated time and time again. Uh, and, I, and I think the media need to take some responsibility here because when I was caught, they did um, the, the Daily Mail did a Mail on Sunday magazine and they did a four-page spread on me and various other publications did as well. And it was clearly meant to alienate me from my own people, so to speak. And it, it, it's amazing how they use the term, uh, I was caught with a ropey old haul of weapons. Well, on the day of sentencing, that turned into a deadly arsenal. How did that happen? How did it go from a ropey old haul of weapons to a deadly arsenal of weapons? Does um, it really matter if they're ropey or old because they're no, still the weapons? Eye, so, I don't, but I get what you're saying. It was it's, done to... It's to yeah. me and undermine me. 
and and things like where did they get the picture of, of the photos of me in a in, in a category A, you know, white paper suit? Where did they get the where did they get the photographs of the guns on the floor of the car park? And and, and when a, an associate of mine approached the um, uh, the journalist and he put it to him that basically you've put, you've written anything the police want you to write in exchange for the photograph. And he admitted it straight away. He didn't make, it, he didn't make any bones about it. He, he, he said that. And, and I think the thing is that can endanger somebody. That can endanger Misinformation can endanger somebody. And it's happened to me again recently. It's happened to me again. It's happened to me again even, even now, last year, where it was, it was said in the Sunday world that I'd extended the end of friendship to Johnny Adair. Now, that's rubbish. In fact, it's not rubbish. It's a lie. It's a dangerous lie. It's a very, very dangerous lie. Because when I go to Northern Ireland, there could be people that take exception to that if they believe it. Fortunately, enough people I know don't believe it. But that was a, that was a conversation that I was asked what my relationship was with Johnny. And I said, you need to remember, when I came out of prison, C Company looked after me. C Company entertained me. C Company gave me money to take, you know, to take home to my family. And I'm not going to forget that. There's no way I'm going to forget that. And the comment I made was, if I was walking through an airport and Johnny was walking towards me, my natural instinct would to be to walk up and shake his hand because of back then. But because of the feud and because of the death of John, of, of, of John Gregg, who was a personal friend, um, you know, I, I carried his coffin part away, you know, at his funeral. I can't do that. I couldn't do that. And Johnny understands that. Johnny understands that. But that, that newspaper, that reporter, chose to put in his paper that I have extended the hand of friendship to Johnny. Now, that can endanger me. So, you know, I've got, I've got a lot of previous where the press have got a lot to ask for. And even in the UDA book, you go and get the UDA book, The History of the UDA by Henry McDonald and Jim Cusack. They even got my name wrong. They got my name wrong. They called me James. I think they got the sentence. And there's a bit, the bit that particularly offended me was the bit where they said that uh, drugs charges. I've never sort of drug in my life. I hate drugs. Can't stand them. Can't stand drugs. What nothing to do with drugs. Now, of course, as I said to you earlier, these things get regurgitated, and sloppy and lazy journalists just repeat it and repeat it. And I come across my name all over the place on the on the internet. I I find things out about me I didn't know. That's for sure. You know. So yeah, but I, but listen, if you don't get involved. These things don't happen, don't So I'll take it on the chin. I have read the articles that you mentioned. It was one of the things I was going to bring up about Johnny Adair because mm. it just it, it conflicted with the fact that you were John Gregg's friend. Mm. And for anyone who doesn't know, John Gregg was brutally murdered in 2003 on his way home to Belfast from Scotland. Um, he was shot dead. He was uh, the leader of Southeast Antrim UDA at that time. He was killed in a loyalist feud. His his murder caused huge ructions within loyalism. Mm-hmm. 
And it was part of the reason that Johnny Adair, uh, I mean, had to leave Northern Ireland. And I've interviewed Johnny on this show. Yeah, uh, uh, when that murder happened at that time, Frank, can you remember? I mean, first of all, as that being your friend, uh, mm. how did you receive that news? Well, I got a phone call and, uh, you know, I, I knew what the implications were going to be. It, it didn't take a lot. I mean, apart from the initial shock of it, you know, and the, and the sadness because I was in a family. And, uh, and many of his friends and associates. But I knew what the repercussions were going to be, which which was going to affect other friends and associates. And that's never good. That, that's, that's never good. And, um, and again, I, I can only say I wish none of it had happened. I, 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 I talked to a Republican a few weeks ago, and I said to him, I just wish you'd gone the way of the SDLP. I wish you'd have gone the way of the SDLP and, and, and not pick the militant path, you know. And and I know that I know, I know things were bad. I know things were bad back then. And I, and, I, and I know there were social injustices. I accept that. I also think there were social injustices on the Lord's side as well, by the way. But it's sometimes it's hard to distinguish between those that were, that, that were protesting the civil rights and those that were protesting for United Ireland, you know, i.e. using the cover of the civil rights movement. Sometimes it was, the lines were very, very blurred. And, and, and I just wish, I just wish um, the Catholic nationalist community had followed the SDLP because, and, and I don't believe we'd have had so much bloodshed. I certainly wouldn't have got involved, that's for sure. I certainly wouldn't have got involved. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that for selfish reasons, by the way. I'm saying it's for everybody, whichever whichever side of the community. Um, and, 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 I, and I make a point of saying to people, when they're young people, you know, these cells are favour. You've got far more in common with each other, you know, than what you've got against each other. And I see a young man get questioned, and it was all, I thought he was going to be set up. He was being interviewed when the, the, the riots started again briefly. And, and they spoke to this young man, and he said, no, he said, I'm going to join the Navy. So I'm going to learn a trade, he said, and then I'm going to come back to my community and I'm going to help my community. And I'm going, well done, young man. Well done. You're not going to go and throw a petrol bomb, ruin your life, ruin somebody else's life. You're going to go and get an education and come back and you're going to assist your community. And I, the young man on the other side of the wall is thinking exactly the same way. I, think he's, I, I hope they're all thinking that way. And I don't know why not want to take a few years to get around to doing it. It's a good start. It's, a, it's, it's refreshing to see that, if I'm honest. Yeah. That's good because I was going to ask you about your current opinion on the state of loyalism at the minute. And I know 10 years ago that you were a guest in Dublin to celebrate uh, a commemoration for British soldiers, which was a huge thing in the Irish Republic. Yeah. And, and, and Irish soldiers are hastened to it. Yeah, and, and, and Irish soldiers. Um yeah, I've I've been um, I've been uh, I've had invitations and I've had Her Majesty's pleasure twice. And I've got to say the second time was far better than the first time. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a very surreal day. That to, to, to hear both national uh, anthems played, both flags, you know, both lots of um, uh, you know soldiers, and um, 
there was a, a big marquee and we all mixed and we all spoke to each other and so yeah very surreal day very honored to to, to have been there and um i'd like to think that was some recognition that my position had changed uh, and i wanted to work for peace and um in fact, I'm going to, they're saying, I won't go into it now, but uh, there's something going on late in the year. I've been invited somewhere. Um, and I will be meeting a very uh, prominent IRA man, very, very well-known man. Um, I can't say it at the moment for security reasons, but um, which is a bit, of, a bit of a challenge for me, if I'm honest. But Big step. Big step for you, least, yeah. But if it, if it gives an example to younger people, then I'm, I'm prepared to take that step. I think that's a positive thing, Frank. I mean, we can demonize and vilify people to the end of time. Um, I think it's more important that we learn lessons from the past. I will still go. I will, I will, I will go for the 12th, and that is purely to be amongst old friends. I'm not there for political reasons. Certainly not there for military reasons. It, it's to go, it's enjoy the occasion, meet old friends. Because we're all, you know, look, so many of them are dying, you know, or so many of them are dead. You know, the old, the, 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 the old, um, you know, UDA fellas that I knew, you know, in their seventies, you know, eighties, and uh, and every year, you know, some of them, are, some of them are dying. So it's the last opportunity to actually uh, to go and meet them. But we don't sit there reminiscing about the the, uh, the troubles. That's for sure. The conflict. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. We go to enjoy each other's company while we're still here. You know. What is your opinion on loyalism at the moment, uh, Frank? Because, I mean, it's associated with drug dealing a lot. Uh, I know we hear about the protocol, but, I mean, a lot of people, and even loyalists themselves, former people who would have spent life sentences or long sentences in for political reasons in Northern Ireland would say Mm. that loyalism now, there are too many Loyalist groups connected with drugs. It, it's it, They are more like organised crime gangs who wrap themselves in the flag. Yeah, you know, I couldn't could, argue with that. I, I, I couldn't argue with that. It's 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 become a career for some people. It's just it's just become a career move for some people. And um, I I wouldn't be welcome in some areas because I would be outspoken about that. There's there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, I might go into detail, but I was actually out of an area um, under the guise of something else, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I, I actually believe it was more the fact, my, you know, my my opinion on drugs and, and you know the influence on on the communities, um, particularly young people. Uh, and I'm not going to go back on that. I'm not going to go back on that. Yes, I should stick with that view, you know. So it's ironic that someone that never did it, never lifted a finger, never lifted a finger, uh, certainly didn't lose their liberty, was now exerting power over other people. You know, there are more recruits now than there was in the troubles. I think there's twelve thousand five hundred people members of loyalist organisations. Now, a loyalist said to me that the reason he believes there are more recruits now than there was in the Troubles, is because now you don't have to do anything. Thank God. Thank yeah. God that you don't. But yeah, that's well, you've why. Hour, you've, you've, hour hour hour. 
I think you've hit an hour on the head. I think you've had exactly that, exactly that. And and the and the fact that look, I understand it. If you if your father, your uncles, even your grandfather, have done what they would deem done their bit, whether it's the late sixties through the seventies, eighties, nineties. I understand that they want to be seen to be doing their bit. You know, they want to keep that tradition going. Their family, if your family is known in a street as, as, as being respected loyalists, I can understand why a young man would want some of that kudos. I get it. But if they're going to join, yeah, I'm glad they're doing it now. I'm glad they're doing it now because it's, it's totally inactive. It's totally inactive. So... I'm, I'm, I'm quite content with that. Yeah. You're working on your second book. Yes, that's correct. Is that right? Yeah. So when's that yeah. going to be out? Well, that's going to be far more reflective. Half of it will kind of go back to the past, but the second half will be far more reflective and, and answer probably some of the questions that you may well ask in the future. But as I say, I've got this big thing at the end of September, and if it goes to plan, then Maybe you know, maybe in October because it will be public by then. Um, mm-hmm. and I will be able to speak about it far more, far more openly. Plus my response, you know how how that's gone. But yeah, and again, I'll just say before we do go, thanks very much for the invitation, giving me an opportunity to put certain things straight, and um, and a lot of respect for what you're doing because I've watched I've watched them all so far. I don't obviously intend to watch the the ones in future. And, it, and if it gets people, you know, with similar backgrounds to myself, uh, to sit and listen to each other, you know, maybe we can all do sort of a bit of good somewhere down the line. Absolutely, Frank. And thank you so much again for coming. I really appreciate it. This podcast is about getting voices out there because, like I said, I believe it's my own personal opinion. If we don't learn from the past, I mean, you know, yeah. we can't demonize people forever. We'll have to learn. We have yeah. to. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode, and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.